Good morning and thank you very much for joining us today where we're going to be talking about boosting civic engagement, in particular the role of participatory budgeting. Now we've seen over recent years that getting citizens involved is a great way to deliver on all the agendas we have for Europe and all the sustainable goals that we see in the future, the Build Back Better aims and also the green and digital transitions. But it getting over the rise of populism in certain countries is, is also a huge challenge and voter disillusionment is something that we see is significant in certain countries. So many cities and regions are taking the bull by the horns and approaching this in their own way, including with so-called participatory budgeting. We're going to talk about what that means, how it can help deliver on the goals for the EU, and we're going to listen to a few different people. We're going to talk to different sources, including Demotech, which is the Horizon 2020 funded project that's looking specifically at this. With that, let me introduce you to our panel of speakers this morning who will be engaging in this discussion, and I hope we will have a very fruitful discussion. Of course, you, the audience, don't forget that you can put your questions in the chat, because I know most people are following online today. Katia Reppel is head of unit at the Democracy and European Values bit of, RTD, of DGRTD in the European Commission. And that unit is in charge of defining the calls for proposals relating to research on democratic governance under the Horizon Europe framework, as I mentioned earlier. And it's the successor to the programme from which Demotech is funded. So Horizon 2020 became Horizon Europe. And so this is under uh, Katia's umbrella. Elisa Leoni is a Programme Director at the European Democracy and Citizen Action Service, one we know very well here in Brussels. Marlene Simeon is Director of Operations at CMR, which is, she leads the policy and advocacy work of the Council of European Municipalities and Regions, so CEMRs. They've worked for local and regional governments for more than 11 years in Brussels and represents more than 60 national associations from local and regional levels across 40 European countries. And Andras Farkas, is the director of Pont Group. So thank you all so much for joining me here today. Um, I think, Katia, let me start with you. Tell me a bit why you're interested in this participatory citizen engagement approach to getting policies done. So, yes, good morning and uh, welcome to everybody. Um, as you said, my unit is in charge of defining the Horizon Europe calls for research and innovation projects in the field of democracy and governance. Of course, we do that together with the member states and associated countries via our program committee in line with the program regulation for Horizon Europe our research and innovation framework program. We also follow, as you said, projects uh, like Demotech, about which we will hear today. So thank you very much about having organized this. <clears throat> we are always very much interested in getting the information on the great research and innovation that is done in our projects out into the world and discuss it with the audience, be it experts, be it ordinary citizens. I think it's worthwhile to disseminate and engage also in feedback activities with um, the people in the field. We do these research and innovation actions, of course, in a policy context. Um, you may have heard about the Commission's priority, new push for EU democracy. One of the flagships uh, that was run in that was the uh, Conference on the Future of Europe, which recently closed. And in terms of policy framework, where the actions are charted out, it's the EU Democracy Action Plan, which was adopted in 2020 with lots of activities on election integrity, active citizenship, media freedom, pluralism of 
of media, accountability of social media platforms, fight against disinformation and hate speech. So we'll find a lot of that in our calls for proposals for research and innovation um, topics. Unfortunately, this um, action plan only set out what we noticed in the research. Uh, fact is, democracy cannot be taken for granted anymore. There are plenty of challenges and the decreasing trust in democratic processes and institutions and the increasing polarization of political views is just one of them. And I think we need to find innovative solutions for the challenges for our democracies in the EU. Deliberative and participatory democracy methods seem to be um, an approach that is fit to address these challenges that I just mentioned, lack of trust um, in the institutions. Hence, we are using the EU funding for research and innovation to develop such approaches, to have innovative ways of how it, to involve European uh, citizens in policymaking, in democratic um, activities, and also to experiment with them in real life contexts in different EU countries, just as done in the Demotech project. Such experiments allow to adjust innovative approaches to specific national and also local contexts. And, uh, and I think that's very important. To these experiments show to elected politicians that participatory approaches do not threaten their role and competences, but rather complement the representative democracy type of way how we are set up in the European Union member states. And ultimately, these experiments strengthen the trust and the feeling of ownership of citizens um, who are living in the European Union and who have a say. In the discussion today, we talk about participatory budgeting, and I think that is a very, very important point to show the citizens we take them seriously and they can have a role. And I look very much forward to hearing from Demotech what are their findings in this regard. Thank you very much. Thank you, Katya. Um, Elisa, let me turn to you and get your sense of what you're working on and how it intersects with our topic today. Yes, sure. Thank you again for inviting me. My name is Elisa and I work for the European Citizen Action Service as the program director around European democracy. And my um, expertise really lies in digital democracy. And uh, first of all, I would like to just explain a bit of what we do. ECAS has been in Brussels empowering citizens to exercise their rights for more than 30 years. And we created this uh, focus area called digital democracy already eight years ago because we realized the potential of technology in enhancing democratic processes. And uh, when we talk about digital democracy, we actually have a small framework, uh, which is around uh, the use of ICT in order to enhance uh, certain democratic processes. Um, when the use of ICT is used, especially on the government, uh, it's called e-government e uh, services are based on um, enhancing technology services uh, around the public administration. Then we have the concept of uh, e-transparency when the government is using certain technologies to make its work more transparent to citizens. And the last uh, concept is e-participation, where I would say participatory budgeting is part of. And that is really the use of information and communication technology to allow citizens to interact more with their governments. And in the best case scenario, even co-create legislations, laws, 
policies together with their governments. So the aspect of participatory um, budgeting really falls under this uh, third concept I just mentioned. And I think that it's going to be interesting today to see the, the potential of this type of participatory democracy activity, uh, how it can actually enhance citizens' trust in a government, how it can enhance uh, also um, the legitimacy uh, of a government itself, how it can enhance, for example, accountability of the citizen, and also uh, how these uh, mechanisms can also ensure a learning curve, so also contribute to civic education. Um, I think that these are the potentials that I've mentioned, but I think that it's going to be interesting to talk about the challenges that these sort of e-participation processes might present to um, citizens and as well as to policymakers and how to mitigate risks that these e-participation um, processes are not, let's say, successful, whatever that can mean. Well, thank you, Elisa. You've raised some interesting points, and I do want to come back to you on, on the use of digital and the potential, as well as some of the uh, inherent pitfalls. Uh, let me turn, uh, Marlene, to you. Um, we've talked a little bit there about governments. We've heard from Katia at EU level. Municipalities and regions is your beat. Tell me more about that. Indeed. Good morning, and thank you very much for the invitation. Um, actually, for us, indeed, participatory budgeting can be an effective way to, to align the spending of public money with the real-life uh, needs of the community. It can be a means to navigate the competing pressure also of continually decreasing financial resources with the ever-increasing and complex demands put on, on local and regional governments. Um, we see the focus areas of participatory budgeting are, uh, is enlarging uh, with the challenges municipalities face, uh, such as infrastructure, on education, well-being and health, housing, uh, also tackling uh, climate change now. Um, so we see very uh, much some potential uh, aspect, positive aspects, uh, like to have more informed and engaged uh, citizens to build or re-establish the trust and, and ownership, as it was mentioned by the previous speakers. Uh, it's also about improving the intergenerational understanding also of what is our society, what is the environment and the municipality. It's also encouraging uh, greater local involvement through uh, volunteering, for instance. Uh, it also increases, it can increase the confidence in, in local service providers and the acceptance also of residents over the allocation of resources and budgetary decisions. Um, of course, it's, it's also necessary to allow for uh, prioritization of local and regional funding amongst uh, competing ends. So it helps also to have these discussions with the citizens directly. Um, for us, we have identified some key ingredients you know, for, for the success of, uh, of such participatory budgeting, which is not that easy, a very good impact. But then to be put in place, it requires also that the, pro uh, the process must be transparent, uh, how it's run, how the decisions are taken, the outcome must be inclusive with an equal participation and how to reach those that are less used to participate in those kind of processes. Um, 
and also it requires some capacity building of those who are not used to, to participate. Um, so there are some positive aspects, some challenges, and we have good examples across Europe in terms of participatory budgeting, Glasgow, in some borough, in Paris, in London, in Ghent, and, and many other uh, aspects and, and cities. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. And um, we turn now last but not least to our, our panel speakers. Uh, Andras, Pont Group, it's a focus on entrepreneurship and youth, I understand. How important is that looking to the future? Tell us what that means for uh, the inclusiveness of the approach we're talking about today. Yes, so I'm, uh, we are based in Cluj in Romania. I'm saying hi from Kaunas, from the European Capital of Culture this year. Um, yeah, uh, I think that participation and entrepreneurship are actually very much connected because uh, it's about the attitude of the people. So whenever you want to have or you are having agency in your own local community, you will do something. You will just not stay uh, and uh, stand around and wait for others to do something for you. So because the discussion is participatory budgeting, I start. I try to find a, a, an element of comparison, like w what is participatory budgeting like? So I came up with running. I think participatory budgeting is like running because with running, you are using different parts of your body. You're making exercise, you're keeping yourself alive. Of course, running has proven to be also mentally very helpful. So I believe that participatory budgeting is exactly the same thing. Uh, and I would like to add a little bit the citizen perspective here, not just the institutional perspective. I believe that between two elections, to be very blunt, uh, local governments and cities overall need to have a kind of more permanent interaction uh, with people. Now, when we choose our, uh, our, uh, our leaders, our mayors, our local councils, we choose them to take care uh, of the city. So we don't want to be involved every day. This is why we are choosing them to do their own job because we have our own jobs to be, to be done. However, I believe that participatory budgeting is a really good exercise in keeping this connection alive. So every year, every two years, we get uh, uh, the chance to vote, to decide to be involved in developing some ideas which are mutually important for all community members. And because we are working more uh, with Pond Group on participatory budgeting for youth, I think it's also important to uh, highlight the fact that it is essential to consider why one wants to do participatory budgeting when it decides to do it. It is just not about active democracy. It has a lot of very positive side effects, like making people responsible, connecting various communities, engaging those who are maybe disadvantaged or who have fewer opportunities. But it's also a matter, I believe very much so, it is a matter of trust. Trust between people, trust between municipality and citizens, trust between a lot of actors who are engaged in supporting the participatory budgeting, because I don't think that it is it should be just a municipality who is coordinating the participatory budgeting, but it has so many layers where professionals, NGOs, even companies in some cases can get into the process and supporting it in a very subtle but very important way. And if everybody comes together, basically it is the community and it is the city who is to gain from the whole process. Well, I think uh, you're setting out there that certainly the goals and the aspirations are very much win-win. But we do know, of course, that there are still challenges. As you said, trust is a big issue, getting people involved, providing means for those who are more disadvantaged to actually have their voice heard. So we're going to hear, we've heard now from all our speakers on our panel, we're going to now hear a presentation of the work that has been done and the results that have been 
found, uh, we're going to hear from Fernando Mendez, who is the senior researcher at Cyprus University of Technology and the University of Zurich, on the work that Demotech has been doing and on the findings that you have. So, Fernando, I know you've got a short presentation for us, so I'm going to hand over to you. The floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you for the kind introduction. Um, I can't see the oh. Uh, could we go to the third slide? I think that's. Yeah, let's start there. So, um, yeah, I'll just take a few words, uh, a few minutes to present the Demotech project. It's a standard Horizon, uh, Horizon 2020 European Commission funded project. It's got seven case study cities that you can see in the map there. Some of the countries. Um, uh, have quite a tradition of participatory budgeting. Um, that is the case for Romania, Poland, Netherlands, and to a certain extent, Scotland as well. And then there are a couple of countries with a very limited uh, experience with participatory budgeting, which would be um, Cyprus and Greece. So Demotech really is a, a targeted intervention um, in these uh, seven case study countries. Could we go to the next slide, please? Okay, structured around these uh, four dimensions that you see. The first two are principally academic, essentially involved in understanding how the news media reports about uh, PB and how people discuss PB on Twitter. The second component is uh, conducting a cross-national survey to see what citizens' attitudes towards PB are like. And then there's the public policy component, which essentially involves um, a, a series of PB experiments in the case study cities. And hopefully at the end of the process, we'll have some comparative lesson drawing and policy recommendations. Um, let's move on to the next slide. So at the moment, we've really only completed the first task, which was understanding how the news media talk about um, PB, how they uh, describe PB in their news articles, and how people on Twitter uh, post uh, how they um, uh, also represent, how they talk about PB. Um, next slide, please. So we've collected a, a corpus that consists of uh, two collections of documents. The first is uh, news media articles, about 43,000 of them in nine languages and um, a collection of social media posts, about uh, 300,000. And here on the graph, you can see the sort of upward trend over time in terms of uh, mentions of PD in both those types of media channels. We can go to the next slide. I'll just take a few minutes. There we are. Okay. So, um, I'm not going to go into all the details, but essentially we've uh, conducted a, a framing analysis of the Demotech corpus, that's that large collection of uh, news articles and uh, social media posts. And we're looking at the ways in which uh, PB is either emphasized or presented either in the news articles or in the short social media posts. And we've got, we can represent this on, on a two by two matrix, as you can see there. And it's composed of two dimensions. There's an overarching framing uh, dimension on the y axis. And essentially we've got two overarching 
frames in which uh, PB is talked about. One emphasizes sort of normative values, essentially democratic values. Um, and the second uh, frames PB mostly in terms of uh, resources and capacities. It's a much more utilitarian, much more factual kind of representation of PB. As you can see on the x-axis, there's um, a positive way of representing PB for these uh, two overarching dimensions and a, a sort of negative counter variant. Most of the discussion of PB in the news is overwhelmingly positive. Uh, I, I'd estimate about 90% of it. But it's very interesting to find this sort of negative tonality or negative valence, as we call it, where uh, critical views are offered with regard to PB. So the first one in the upper left quadrant is a sort of positive framing of PB. PB is talked about as a solution to democratic problems, as a form of empowering citizens. It can improve accountability and make the whole process much more transparent. And there's an interesting um, frame as well that uh, talks about PB as a way to promote social inclusion, to um, involve uh, marginalized groups that typically don't have a voice. What's very interesting is that there's a counter argumentation uh, that, that sort of challenges this view. This is a, 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 the most prominent of which is a classic uh, argument that's millennia old and it really relates to whether citizens are actually competent to decide on such matters. So this is a classic argument against direct democracy, participatory democracy. It's used, for instance, against holding referendums and it sort of questions what are citizens' competence. There's another one that focuses on a lot of partisanship and patronage that we get uh, when uh, PB is um, uh, for some PB experiences that it's the same administration that tries to promote this or particular politicians. So that's quite interesting in terms of this negative uh, view of the uh, democratic value of PB. And similarly, when we look at the resources frame, we also find a, a, a sort of negative counter frame. And that, the typical argument here is, okay, there's, it's a nice idea, but there's not enough money. It's just linear kind of democracy, or there's huge delays, um, they're still waiting to uh, spend the money, or it's a, uh, there's been a lot of waste. So I'll stop here just to say that these are the kind of four major overarching frames in which we found PB to be represented, and it might be of use for um, our current discussion in terms of uh, continuing with the different issues that have been raised. Thank you. Thank you, Fernando. Uh, a, a quite insightful view there of, of what's being said through the media, uh, be that social media or, or more traditional media. Um, let me ask you, I mean, obviously uh, as a researcher you're working on this, you're saying PB, and participatory budgeting, it's a bit of a mouthful. Are people calling it anything else? I mean, is there a discussion in media about this but not using these same terms? Um, yes, uh, but again, it depends on the language as well, so that's uh, pretty much in English, we're finding the term, the other way it's discussed, you sometimes get the term citizen's budget, um, so these are the generic terms in English, in Spanish as well, um, uh, 
We used lots of search terms to try and find um, uh, mentions of PB or things that are like PB. So in terms of generic concepts in, in English, we are, I've not come across many more. The other way in which it's framed is in terms of the particular event. So if it's called have your say in whatever Glasgow, it will have that, uh, that label. Do you find or have you seen that there is that the budgeting side is separated out from that kind of have your say approach um, that, that people view it differently or do people feel that having their say can be about in the framing of the values as well as how uh, funds and resources are spent? Well, yes, I mean, we, we have this um, dual approach. Uh, um, you can see this quite a lot on social media. So in social media, you get a lot of um, activity from people either directly or indirectly involved in uh, the process in the events. They will have calls to action. They will have, um, they will promote the event. Um, they will try to elicit uh, support and they will use this um, sort of democratic values frame that we just mentioned and trying to get people out. Um, then there is another um, type of post where, and also news articles, we see this a lot in the, the news articles where you, it's more informational and uh, so there's coverage reporting of a particular event and they will say things like uh, the people have voted, people have selected these 10 projects or um, the community has decided to spend X amount on a new nursery and uh, another few thousand on fixing potholes in the road. So these are two very different uh, communication uh, messages. One is kind of factual reporting about the, the actual uh, event, how the money is being spent, who's involved, with which outcomes, and the other one is much more um, generic and typically talking about the virtues of the process, how it's good to participate and try to, try to elicit support. And then a final question for me, and I will remind our audience that, of course, you can put your questions. Fernando will be there in the background of our panel discussion. If there's a specific question for him, please put it in the chat. Uh, in, in the box on the right of your screen. But for me, Fernando, my last question is around this pushback on citizen competence. Are you seeing any counter-narratives to that? So if you like a pushback to the pushback. Yes, uh, we do see it. We do, we, we've seen it. Um, it. It's very difficult in Twitter to analyze these kinds of threats because they quickly go off topic. But there's an uh, interesting We've been analysing Reddit forum where there is a quite a sophisticated debate going on uh, with regard to um, participatory budgeting. It's more US um, because it's quite extensive in the US and there is uh, pushback, there's a lively debate. As I said, it's not a debate that's necessarily specific to participatory budgeting. It's a, an age-old debate that goes back to whatever, Plato and uh, many centuries, which really calls into question the competence of citizens to decide on uh, complex matters. So you'll hear arguments like, uh, well, I've cho we've chosen, we've selected 
the representatives uh, to make these choices uh, for us. So that's the kind of argument. Um, and yes, there is a, a very lively debate, but it is a minority. It is, as I said, it's overwhelmingly positive, but it is important to, I think, um, identify these counter arguments um, that challenge some of their conventional wisdom. Well, thank you very much for presenting that to us. Uh, and I know you're going to stay around until the end of the debate. As I say, once again, if we have any specific issues for you, we will call you back in. Thank you very much indeed, Fernando Mendez. Let me come back now to our panel. Um, and, and I will get your sort of general reactions to, to what we've just heard there about, about this project. Katya, um, I, I know the Commission does certain things. We've even seen it at a, a pan-EU level. We've seen the, the, the Conference on the Future of Europe, which has had its own issues. But tell me, within uh, DGRTD, what are you doing to, if you like, put your money where your mouth is in terms of steps in this direction? Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, unfortunately, I cannot tell you that the Horizon Europe budget is anything but um, uh, programmed in a participatory manner, as we just heard from uh, Fernando and the other colleagues speaking. Now, but the truth is that I was not explicit enough about the roles of my unit. It's not only that we take note and try to disseminate to the world the research findings, the um, the issues and complexities, Fernando was talking about different countries who have different levels of practice and habits, and also I think different cultures which prevail in the, in the different parts of the European Union or even in different regions within the same countries. Um, so it's not only that we're looking outside, we are also having the role to share the results and promote the results within the European Commission and within our own administration. So when we see that this participatory and deliberative approach is actually helpful to bring citizens closer, to empower them, to give them a feeling of ownership, we share that with our colleagues, for instance, in the Secretary General of the Commission and say, hey, listen, um, when you do this conference, try to build in the findings, try to build on what the researchers and practitioners out in Europe have found and how that works. Uh, with regard to research and innovation policy itself, we are also keen on involving citizens in shaping it, in participating actually in it. So the Horizon Europe regulation foresees, for instance, to always issue strategic plans. They're not at the level of details of the work programs and the calls, but they chart out the big picture. Where do we want to go uh, within the regulations uh, framework? For instance, we will start in the course of this year to develop the second strategic plan for Horizon Europe covering 2025 to 2027. So that is quite important budgets which will be moved. And uh, there we want to have citizens involvement, citizens engagement in the shaping of this strategic plan. Citizen engagement and then of course the usual stakeholders, the member states, the research and scientific community and so on, but definitely also ordinary citizens to get them aboard. And part of the output of the conference on uh, the future of Europe um, was actually already looked at very closely in my house because it gives interesting an interesting sense of what the citizens saw as, well, that is something we really, really need more research on. And I mean, unsurprisingly, lots of health issues, for instance, came out of that. 
um, and lots of environmental climate change related issues. So that is for us a good pointer to see, ah, okay, that is the direction we need to go further and also then to prioritize certain activities. The other form of citizens engagement besides this participation in the strategic plan that we are promoting, my unit is promoting and the other units in the house are eagerly participating in that, is uh, the citizens engagement in actually the um, scientific processes themselves. We call that citizen science. And you can see that in a number of our activities and calls uh, and also in the EU missions. So these missions that are the five missions about beating cancer, climate adaptation, having 100 climate neutral cities, restoring the oceans and healthy soils. So these are the, the five uh, missions which are out. For all of them, it is very, very clear that we will not achieve the target of the missions unless citizens participate and unless they bring in their expectations, for instance, in the field of cancer, their expectations as patients, as family members, um, as people who are involved in the care system to, to deliver um, preventive measures to not get cancer or then during the, the treatment. We really have to have the citizens involved and that becomes more and more explicit in our calls for proposals that we want to have that dimension in. So to wrap up, we're not quite there yet in terms of participatory budgeting with Horizon Europe. And I don't think our regulation allows us to do so, but we really want to get citizens aboard because that is key to regain a lot of, of trust of the citizens in how the European Union functions and what we are actually doing. Thank you. Um, Marlene, I want to come back to you because, uh, and get your reaction to the presentation because you're talking about looking at so many different regions and areas across Europe uh, and, and the project, of course, it can to do everything but focused on seven different. Was there anything that chimed with you about the difference between regions or whether there's an overarching idea of it's the same problems expressed differently in different parts of Europe? Yes, thank you for the question. Uh, it's uh, thank and thank you for the presentation. It was very interesting to to see this variety of uh, of context in the end. And I think a lot is also related to the competencies of local and regional governments. It's actually varying a lot from one country to another. Centralized, less centralized, uh, and and we thought it. We had a, a publication last year as this year on territorial governance powers and, and reforms in Europe. And it also uh, actually shows the difference of competencies. Uh, can the municipality run actually the participatory budgeting to which point they can make the change alone as well? A lot of changes that can happen at the local level will be uh, done through, uh, often through coordination with other levels of governance. It's always and very often very necessary as well. So this is important to have this in mind also that it can limit or it can empower really the municipality to lead this kind of processes or to make it uh, possible for the citizens to do that. Um, but it's really very from one context to, to another. Uh, what we see is also this, uh, this necessity to, to build the capacity for, for the residents on one part, for the, the people, but also for the public administration, like both staff and, and politicians, to be really provided with toolkits to support 
the exchange of, of experience between the personnel as well uh, to be able to, to better lead uh, the, the process. Elisa, uh, let me ask you about the, that point about exchanging, if you like, best practice or, or best, uh, best case scenarios. What's, what's your view on that? And also do give me your reaction uh, to the presentation. Yes, thank you very much uh, uh, for the question. I think that the presentation was really interesting, especially in the part where you could see the potential and challenges according to um, not only the media, but to other stakeholders interested. So what I thought was interesting was to see, according to the analysis of Demoteco, which ones were the main uh, criticism to participatory budgeting, such as corruption, partisanship, and uh, citizen competence, uh, according to the values and funds, waste and delays, which I can um, also see in my research around digital democracy that usually these are some uh, of the criticism, but I'm happy to hear also that the potential and the uh, uh, positive sides are outweigh, let's say, the, the negative sides. Although the negative uh, sides should be taken quite seriously because, um, for example, the um, um, uh, the, uh, the criticism on citizen competence comes up very much in um, these sort of participatory democracy um, activities. And actually, I could counter that argument by saying that uh, uh, actually there is the potential for these type of activities to enhance um, uh, people's competences and uh, understanding of how policymaking works. Um, one uh, uh, interesting thing about participatory budgeting is the fact that um, many citizens who have participated have actually afterwards reported in certain research interviews that mm, they realized uh, what the responsibilities were for policymakers when they had to allocate public funds to certain things. There's an interesting um, gamification uh, website by a UK company called Delib in which there's a budget simulator, for example, where people can uh, play this game in which they're trying to allocate funds to uh, different, uh, um, yeah, different things in their city. And uh, once they put certain funds in one sector, of course, they see that there's less money for another sector. And this is all part of a long-term strategy of civic education, which shouldn't only come from teachers and schools, but also from participation and engagement of people. So I think that citizens' competences comes by practice and by constantly using this type of this type of tools. And just to answer quickly on your question on exchange of knowledge, I do think that unfortunately there has to be a lot done in this um, in this point on this point because uh, although the commission has been also um, opening great uh, projects uh, uh, with NGOs and academics around participatory democracy, what I feel is lacking is really the sharing of know-how amongst us. Um, as practitioners, but also um, amongst the practitioners and the policymakers. So I think that there should be much more exchange of know-how amongst everyone in order to build a solid process before the implementation of participatory budgeting. So I think that what Demotech is doing as research is really great, but the important thing is to have also funding maybe after the project to make sure that the results are also shared amongst the other practitioners 
and especially also to policymakers and local authorities and anyone interested in implementing these in the future. Uh, Anders, let me come to you because um, I'm, I'm focusing a little bit on the negatives because I think it's, it's probably good to challenge those narratives um, when, when we're all more or less, I think, uh, on today's discussion, very much united on the benefits and the potential goals. Um, but we see this question around competence. Is that to misunderstand the nature of what a civil society is or citizens are? We're not a homogenous group and may have varying levels of competence. I mean, what do you see as, as the differing uh, sort of positions there? I think the basic issue is what is the thing on which or what is the money or what is the budget on which somebody should decide in a participatory way? If we realize that and there is this debate also, it's also between the Americans and non, not the Americans, also between the International Association for Public Participation or not. In my perspective, participatory budgeting is any budget where a private or a public uh, a budget owner decides to delegate decision making towards a crowd of people, not a jury, but a crowd of people, a bigger community, smaller community. So I think that whenever somebody has available money and would like to use this tool in engaging uh, a larger crowd this way, the question should be also about what is to be what is to be decided in the process. If we consider it should be something as an easier question, then let's go that way. In Cluj, there are two participatory budgeting processes. One is the general one, where people uh, are asked by the municipality about what bigger investments should be done, like school, the school buses network was created through participatory budgeting. The youth participatory budgeting, it's about much smaller scale initiatives, which are proposed by young people. And if they are getting voted, they are also implemented by young people. So it's another kind of responsibility where the municipality is only putting the money available. And then all the other actors from civil society, youth organizations come in to help young people, informal groups of young people to propose ideas. So coming back to again to the question, just to avoid negativity, because I am a fan of participatory budgeting. The question is, what is the issue on which the decision is taken? Because if this is well-defined, it is aligned to what citizens are able to decide. If the preparation process is because participatory budgeting is not just about the vote, it is about previous steps, about collaboration, about uh, the ways through which the initiatives which are getting to the vote level are defined and developed together, this means that actually citizens can be prepared to take that decision. And this underlines the final thing I want to add to this is that I, in a lot of cases, I sense this uh, threat, which can lead to negativity, which is about uh, the, the willingness of municipalities to have an instant gratification of the process. Like we launched participatory budgeting and we would like to see the positive effect in society in six months time, for example. In a lot of cases, participatory budgeting is a full project cycle. It doesn't end at voting. It ends when the votes and the initiatives or the projects which are getting voted are actually implemented in practice. This means public acquisitions. This means a lot of investment projects, in, if that's the case. So it's a longer process. So I believe that awareness is very essential for participatory budgeting. It can avoid negativity. And then it's a simple logic. Awareness leads to participation. 
participation leads to trust and trust leads to ownership. And if we manage to get this collective ownership of whatever has been decided, it's about the city life, it's about young people, it's about whatever, then participatory budgeting as a tool uh, will work. And yes, I would also like to second uh, Fernando on the fact that you don't need to call it participatory budgeting because it might be a boring term. So you might have different names in different cities about how it can be marketed because marketing usually also helps this process. Because when you say participatory budgeting, people might tend to feel it is something complicated. So you might need to simplify it for them. Well, in fact, uh, uh, our audience seems to, to echo, so many members of our audience were echoing what you say there. Uh, Johannes Ross has pointed out, more explanation and less complexity is needed, smoother bureaucracy, less understanding creates distrust. So I think making things more comprehensible is, is clearly a, a key aim there, or a way at least to counter, counter some of the distrust. Um, a, a specific question for you, Elena, from uh, Georgina Turner from the EPA platform. Um, she's saying, what you describe sounds like dialogue in practice, and how can such a dialogue become part of the democratic process where exchange of views and practice are regularly and realistically aired or informed? Uh, yes, Elisa, that one was for you. Oh, it was for me. <laughs> it was for you specifically. <laughs> Okay, so it's about uh, dialogue and informing citizens. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, so practice, uh, yeah. Yes, so I think that uh, one of the main challenges in activating these sort of participatory democracy um, uh, activities is really about how you inform the citizens and how you create a sort of dialogue around uh, these policy making processes so that it is uh, understandable to citizens and that they feel like they want to participate. It is one of the challenges. The other two challenges that I would say is really around accessibility and around the feedback and impact loop. Um, so really, um, uh, as uh, Andras, I think, was saying, the most important thing when we implement these type of uh, activities is really uh, to have enough resources um, to spend on communication and marketing. That's what we actually use as a term, uh, strategies. So to make sure that we reach out to also communities that usually do not participate uh, for certain reasons, and there are many of them, um, but to, to use some sort of marketing strategy that is combining both online, of course, outreach, but also offline outreach strategies. These two should always be complementary. And unfortunately, it takes a lot of effort. We're trying to actually implement, uh, implement in one of our projects an air quality crowdsourcing in 10 different cities across Europe. And I have to say that it has been particularly difficult this year also because of external circumstances such as uh, COVID-19, but also, of course, the um, invasion in Ukraine. So you always have to consider also how you're reaching out to certain target groups to get them. And this depends many times from the culture of the country, the culture of participation, the trust of the, um, the citizens in that country in participatory democracy mechanisms and of their local um, authorities. So I think that each um, participatory budgeting um, activity should have its own specific communication and marketing strategy, depending on many factors that I could list for an hour here. But yeah, if you have any other questions about these uh, types of problems, just let me know. 
Elisa, <laughs> thank you. Um, yes, and, and thank you again to uh, Georgina for the question. Katya, let me come to you. Um, a lot of what we're talking about seems somewhat out of a move from EU level, and, and, and we've heard the word competency used more than once. And we know in Brussels that member state competency is kind of the, the catch-all phrase that means that it's difficult for the EU to, to you know, the European Commission to, to put its projects down to local level. Um, but how can projects like Demotech make a material difference? How can they encourage citizen participation? And given that they, that they can have this Horizon Europe as it is now funding. Yeah, <clears throat> just to say, um struggling to bring things at local level actually it's a subsidiarity principle which means for us that if it can be done locally it should be done locally and not at eu level so um and then that sends the this multi-level governance approach where at the local level where you are simply closer to the citizens you experiment with participatory budgeting on very concrete things for which people have a local knowledge, which for instance, in I worked for many years in DG regional development, we don't have there. So shared management means it is actually at local regional level where these decisions are taken. So it's not completely mind boggling and shattering for us. Now, how can the project, and I think Elisa was also making the point, um, share the results, bring the results more out and so on. I cannot say for the uh, so-called citizen equality rights and values program, which is one which is really supporting um, civil society organizations and NGOs and very specific projects on the ground. And I know there are plenty of them ongoing and we have regular changes with the colleagues who are following in um, the director general in charge of that, these issues. So I cannot say how they are supporting that. Um, on the Horizon Europe side, there is actually a change in the inbuilt in the regulation, which means that the project proposals that we receive have to include a dissemination plan. So there is an obligation for the project managers to actually think from the outset, from the proposal and conception of their project, how am I going to disseminate and bring out to the world, to the appropriate stakeholders, um, to appropriate whatever industries they're aiming at, how can I bring the, the results out? I think building this obligation to think about dissemination into the very conception stage is, is very helpful. Um, on the commission side, you may be aware that we are also trying to disseminate information via newsletters, via tweet, Twitters, um, via actually supporting um, now uh, in the future a whole competence center for science journalism because we can possibly do that in a centralized manner. We really need journalists out in the field who are capable and interested in scooping up what comes out as uh, research and innovation results. So we're trying to also do our bit in that. A little bit also in the same vein um, and I'm making here publicity for my uh, my part of the Horizon Europe work program, but there is currently a call for proposal open to set up a network among researchers, practitioners, also policymakers, on exactly sharing their ideas and findings on innovative solutions for the future of democracy. And this idea of participatory budgeting 
as I said in bidding for us, that resonates very much with this is maybe a good approach for um, democratic governance to give citizens more ownership on what is happening on the ground. So those of you who are interested, I can only invite you to look into the um, funding and tenders portal of the European Commission and look out for this call for proposal and try to get involved in that because it's really crucial and I, I agree with what has been said in particular by Lisa, there needs to be more sharing of the results. Thank you, Katia, and thank you for the very practical hands-on advice to our audience. Andras, I think you had something you wanted to add in as well. Yeah, just uh, to second Alisa a little bit, it's uh, very important to underline that whenever you have a thousand euros to do a participatory budgeting, not all the thousand euros will go into actually supporting several projects which are voted in the process. And I would also highlight this, uh, uh, the importance of how you package it, how you create awareness, how you first inform people about this, how then you consult people in the process. And I would also like uh, uh, to add uh, the experience we have in Cluj regarding the work with facilitators. Like, it is not just important to launch a call and then wait for the ideas to come from people. It is also important to create some context, some safe spaces when people can actually sit down together, those of who are interested in even proposing some of the ideas for participatory budgeting, and work in, enable them to work together in defining good projects. Because at first instance, maybe I have my own perfect idea from one neighborhood, the other person has another perfect idea from uh, his other neighborhood. But maybe if we sit down together and we go through a facilitated process, which is not too complicated, but usually helps, then we might come up with one idea, which is actually also covering my idea, original idea and the other person's original idea, but it is something which is becoming more relevant. And yes, you need investment also in this part of, of, um, of the process. Uh, as an experience back in Cluj with the youth participatory budgeting, which is around, uh, it has around uh, 100,000 euros as a, as a budget, so it's not a big, big amount. But it is basically our experience is that you, we might give out around 75% of the available budget directly to the informal groups of young people. And then around 25% of the budget will go into exactly this kind of dissemination activities, awareness raising, facilitation, all the background elements of the process, which make a participatory budgeting successful. So it is not just about giving away the money and then supporting the initiatives voted by the people, but actually supporting how the process is happening. And from this perspective, the process is at least, in, at least as important as the outcome at the end. Marlene, I'd uh, like you to, uh, to build on that a little bit and also maybe to uh, consider about how the pool of participants can be expanded so that a wide range of views is represented, while still at the same time bearing in mind what Andras has just said about, about how you might have a sort of a greater overarching solution if you encompass more people. Yes, thank you very much. Actually, I, I really support what Andres was saying about also ha helping to define good projects. No, it's, a, it's not about uh, only having the money, but how to define them, how to construct them, to build them uh, together. Uh, and, and that's something that uh, requires also some, some support. Uh, 
um, we, we we think these kind of, of projects can, uh, like Demotech, can actually help to experiment, no? And help also in, in repeating the, the exercise over uh, a number of years. It should not be a one-off exercise, but really to repeat it so that the understanding is increasing also on how the policy making is working, how uh, citizens can get uh, can have better knowledge about the processes. Um, we we think that uh, to uh, to maximize the, the efforts to attract the widest pool of, of participants uh, beyond the usual suspects, because that's a big question. No, so there are some citizens that are already very active in their local environment, in their municipalities, but how to reach those that are less used to do that? Uh, it's, uh, it's about uh, offering even different languages. It can be uh, offering also braille uh, material, for instance, sign language translators. It's about uh, making meeting places uh, accessible as well, uh, providing child care also for all types of people to be able to, to participate. And it's also identifying like local leaders and other representatives of local groups for, for outreach to local communities that they know as well uh, who could participate and how to reach them. Sometimes it's even uh, really small, starting with small clusters at neighborhood level, um, also going door to door even to explain also uh, the, the process and, and reaching out, reaching people where they are. So in schools, in clinics, in libraries as well, as well to inform and, and recruit participants to have not the usual suspects. Well, I'm glad you said uh, in schools and, and to reach out and inform because uh, Elisa, I want to ask you, what do you think is needed in terms of an educational point of view um, and information? Not just kids in schools, but obviously also including children in schools, um, but even you know, lifelong learning or, or learning in workplaces and, and where might be the useful points in order to, to disseminate this sort of education? Yeah, thank you for the question. I really think that you uh, touched upon a very valid point here. Actually, research shows that this type of, um, uh, let's say, skills or uh, engagement uh, uh, coming from citizens is best learned in non-formal environment, non-formal education, in lifelong learning education, and not actually at schools. Although I wouldn't also dismiss the importance of teaching kids since a very, very young age, on how they can be part of society, how can they contribute to uh, democracy. So I also think that um, participation, learning, having this culture of democratic participation should come from when you're very young. So I even wouldn't start like at the university level, which is often the case where we learn how to participate after we are reaching our uh, legal age to vote. But also for children, there are so many nice initiatives. And nowadays with gamification, you can actually um, reach out to children and have very fun ways of allowing them to contribute to, um, you know, it, with little games to how they can shape their own neighborhood or things like that. And uh, this all goes to, of course, the um, interest of the teacher to also transmit this kind of uh, education. But in reality, it's also about a lot about funding. So making sure that these types of um, activities are have enough resources to be implemented. 
And uh, apart from teachers and uh, university professors and everything, I would also give uh, a shout out to NGOs who can support this type of processes because a lot of trainings can be done by civil society organizations if they have enough, uh, of course, resources once again, but they do it also at a volunteer base uh, to reach out to young people um, uh, and uh, also more seniors to in, in order to uh, tell them that these participatory democracy activities are actually existing in their own city, existing in their own country. And here, again, we talk about dissemination and communication. It's really about how do you reach out to these citizens to tell them that this actually exists, because the lack of awareness that this exists is sometimes the, the main problem. It's not only a lack of interest, it's really a lack of awareness sometimes that, um, that they can participate. I want to build on that and talk about also perhaps a lack of self-confidence in some areas, particularly when we talk about budgeting. It's studies across the EU show that even taking into account regional differences, a lot of younger people and, and, and even middle-aged and old people have a feeling that their numeracy isn't strong enough and that they don't understand, for example, statistics clearly enough. Are we putting the right foundations there within schools or within basic learning and education programs across the EU for people to feel they would have the competence to deal with, as I say, numbers or, or budgeting? And Ash, I'd like your thoughts on that. Was, uh, was presented about that platform which helps you construct a budget. If I remember well, Better Reykjavik, which is a very good uh, PB, actually, I, I, I love it how they, they constructed it. It is also building up on the fact that voting is not just voting yes or no for one initiative or another, but it is basically, you know how much budget you have available and then you need to allocate it somehow. So basically you are starting to vote some of the projects and then you see your uh, budget cap already filling up. So when you get over the budget, then you need to, to take out one of the projects. You need to take in something which is a little bit smaller. So it's a very interesting gamification, uh, by the way, Aliza mentioning gamification. I think, again, training people to decide is also about training ourselves to be able to define good questions which need answer from citizens. Because if we put two complicated questions, we will get either there is no, no such thing as a wrong answer. We might get non-answers because people will not understand the question well. And whenever you don't understand the question, you will just not answer. If, it is, it, if you get repeatedly questions which you don't understand, you will just not participate at all in the process. So going at, back to the design of a participatory budgeting, how you build it up, it is essential to realize and to work really with experts who are good in defining these kind of processes it can be the user experience if we want to borrow an idea from entrepreneurship and from startups, but it is about the UX of participatory budgeting. And then it is again up to us to consider how that decision is taken. If it's a completely electronic way of voting, if it is something, some of the cities, I know that they are still focusing very much on paper ballots because they want to train people, especially young people, on the exercise of voting during elections. So they are not using digital technologies. Also, there is another thing with the digital is that there might be some people who are left out because they don't have access to the Internet or to the digital tools or they don't have the, the necessary equipment to do the online voting. So these things need to be considered. But I believe it is essential 
to define what question are we putting towards citizens on which they need to decide by their voting. And if the question is simple enough and the preceding steps are well developed, well understood also, then people will not have a problem to decide because I believe that one thing people like to do is that to decide. It is the problem. I don't think it's about the decision. The problem is about being something complicated where they don't take a decision because they just don't understand the question. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think framing questions properly is, is hugely important. We on, on these events often run polls and I always say don't include all of the above as an option for people to select because they will always select that and you don't get any granularity. So I think uh, understanding how to craft the sorts of policy questions we want answered is a skill that uh, perhaps our policymakers need to learn as well. Um, with that, I'm actually, uh, Fernando, I'd like to bring you back in again. and. I know the actual project hasn't reached the point of, of defining uh, recommendations yet, but have you any uh, suggestions to policymakers how we can improve citizen engagement in participatory budgeting at whatever level, be that European, be that national, regional or urban and municipality? Um, yes, um, we haven't really started the experiments yet. Um, so it's been very interesting to hear uh, some of these experiences, uh, especially from Andres on uh, some of uh, the events he's familiar with. Um, I can tell you one issue we're, we're going to have, which is, and it's been touched upon, it's the, I'd call it the recruitment dimension. How do we get people to beyond those who self-select the usual suspects that are politically motivated uh, very interesting i can see this as a, an issue uh, we're having to deal with and um it'd be quite interesting to get some feedback from from those of you that have uh, conducted uh, that have experience with pb how you got around this um uh, we could think of random assignment uh, choosing people so that's one of the issues we're we're dealing with i think we've um, discussed here as well um the eu level i think is a an interesting obviously the eu level of the eu has zero competencies for for um, uh, implementing participatory budgeting at the local level this can only come from the local level and in our in our analysis, certainly with regard to what's being reported, there was for most languages, that is for most countries, there was very limited mention of the EU. Interestingly, in Romanian, we've got a large corpus of Romanian news articles, it's one of the biggest ones, which is indicative of um, a lot of uh, PB events taking place there. They, they did mention EU and in, in Poland as well. So maybe there are instances where there is experimentation with EU funds. Now, the EU provides a lot of money through its cohesion policy, through its uh, regional uh, development funds. So it would be quite interesting to find out if there were any ways in which the incentives could somehow be configured perhaps to make experimentation for a given portion 
of the money, um, it would have to be, I guess, very limited, a percentage, whatever it is, for experimenting with uh, PB. But um, from my perspective, I do not know of any mechanism, you know, without the member state agreeing, without the member states agreeing. But I'm sure there could be some intelligent playing around with the incentives that perhaps might encourage some of the local uh, municipalities to at least do something with that portion of money that comes to them. Um, it, the money, of course, is distributed usually at the national, at the, by the capitals, but maybe there is a way. It'd be interesting to see if Katia in particular thinks, are, are there any mechanisms that, something that could be done to that end? I'll go to Katia's final thoughts in a minute, but I think, Elisa, you had indicated you wanted to add something. And as we're reaching the end of our discussion as well, if you, if you give a kind of an overarching position of, of what you've thought of our discussion. Yes, sure, thanks. Um, yes, there is something that I would like to mention, and I don't think we've mentioned enough um, at, this, uh, at this webinar, which is quite bizarre for participatory democracy, which is the importance of impact. And maybe this is because amongst all of the e-participation mechanisms or other offline participatory democracy mechanisms, we see that um, usually participatory budgeting is the one in which uh, citizens can see the most tangible results in the sense that it is very clear the objective of the participatory budgeting um, where there is an allocation of funds. And once the exercise is over, this whole process is over, there is an allocation of funds. And this is the impact that the citizens actually have on democracy. And in other types of uh, participatory democracy mechanisms, such as we've seen with the Conference of the Future of Europe, when it was more about consultation processes, uh, citizens' assemblies, um, crowdsourcing ideas, um, the, Im the impact usually is much weaker. And it's much uh, more um, non-transparent on how these contributions of citizens will be taken into consideration. So I think that amongst all of these different um, um, activities, participatory budgeting is the one um, that is the most attractive in some ways because citizens actually see the results of their participation. And I think that this is really, really important. And it is a fundamental point to engage more citizens to be part of this process. Because when you go to citizens and you tell them, you know, citizens who have participated actually reached the result that they wanted or the majority of citizens managed to change something in their neighborhood because of this exercise, um, this really is something that encourages other citizens to, to join in, the, the importance of impact. The second thing, and to wrap up my thoughts on this, um, that we did not mention, I think is more about the possibility of having participatory budgeting at the EU level, which is something I think is completely feasible. It is not as easy because for citizens to see tangible results at the EU level may be a bit more abstract as a concept. But, uh, for example, member of the European Parliament, Helmut Scholz, uh, recently came up with a report on citizens' dialogues and citizen participation. And participatory budgeting as a pilot at the EU level is mentioned. And I honestly think that this is something that uh, is very interesting and could become in the future um, a pilot project that is implemented uh, to, to allocate 
uh, a part of the EU's fund to something um, that can benefit uh, Europe and start seeing also citizens uh, contributing to EU policymaking in that sense. Thank you, uh, Alicia. Katya, um, your thoughts, your, your kind of overarching responses to everything you've heard and, and what you would like to see going forward. And, uh, I'll pick up on the remarks of Fernando and Elisa in a minute because I was intrigued by the discussion before about uh, citizens being sometimes hesitant to participate or not having the right IT skills to participate or, um, well, or partisanship. That was mentioned in the beginning that uh, only the most angry, the most engaged citizens are participating and making their voice heard. Uh, which doesn't reflect necessarily the views of the uh, silent majority, the famous silent majority. Um, we applied not only in the Conference of the Future of Europe, but also in another participatory exercise run by my Directorate General on, is it called actually Citizens' Voices on uh, Climate Transition. Um, we used the random selection of participants. So it was not volunteers who were particularly interested in that, but um, randomly selected citizens, respecting certain proportions, of course, between men, women with a migration background, uh, age range, and so on, so that you had a pretty good cross-cutting view of the citizens um, across all the European Union member states. And I think this random selection of participants who you round up and then take also your time to explain to, I mean, there was a lot of work about education. I'm not sure that the best, that's the best use. It's more informing them what is up, what are the consequences, what is the framework um, and so on, and then have them deliberate. Not that I don't have any firm statistic and analysis on that, but for me, this random selection in the, in the Conference on the Future of Europe, for instance, showed much more balanced results than when you look into the IT platform. In the IT platform of the COFE, it was who was talking among us here about the usual suspects who replied. So all the lobby groups, uh, all the people who always participate in the Commission's surveys and uh, public consultations, you had them all. And they were all diligently defending the views of their organizations. I'm not quite sure how many ordinary citizens participated and whether that was the, I mean, there were many participants, was it over 30,000, I think, whether that was really um, a statistically valid cross-section of citizens. So the views which came out of the IT platform, to me, seemed to be a bit more uh, polarized and uh, a lot less balanced than the random selection. Now, random selection, that makes a lot of sense if you talk about the EU level, where there, you have millions and millions of people, very different contexts. Of course, when you go down to a local level, um, then maybe you are capable of mobilizing absolutely everybody who has the right to vote to participate in things, which is then quite different. But to come a bit to the question on the EU level and uh, participatory budgeting, and the point that uh, Fernando was touching on, the regional development fund, I mean, the cohesion policy, that is in shared management. So it's not the European Commission who decides where the money goes. Um, and it is largely the member states 
who decide how they want to select the projects, uh, whether they want to do that at national level, at regional level, or even reaching down to local level. There are certain provisions how much has to go to cities, but there is a large degree of discretion, discretion for the national slash regional slash local authorities, how they exactly select the project. So by all means, it is possible that the uh, regional development funds are um, really decided upon in a participatory budgeting mode. So if this is what, uh, what the national politicians decide, it can happen. And um, the regulations which set out the framework for the regional development fund, uh, which have to be approved by the council and the parliament, of course, um, they're not specific on that. And uh, I cannot promise any kind of, uh, in the next structural funds, we will have that in. At the end of the day, it really is, it depends on the national governments and the European Parliament, what they want to see in these regulations, but it's possible to do. And I, I hope that there will be a bit more of these elements, at least in the regional development fund, uh, the, the cohesion funds overall, for the next multi-annual financial framework. Well, Katya, we'll look forward to that. And that's a long conversation to have, I think, on another day. Um, I know we're almost out of time. Andras, if you can sum up in, in a brief message that you would like people to take on board from today's event. I cannot, but I will try. So. There is a support group. There is there are a lot of institutions involved in the background. I believe that participatory budgeting is a vehicle through which people can communicate with people about things which are of common interest. Even if those people are the municipality employees, even if that the mayor or just a citizen in one of the neighborhoods, or if it's a young person, it is about people-to-people -people interaction. And from this perspective, my personal opinion is that a participatory budgeting is really good in connecting people. And I would also second the idea that it shouldn't just happen online, but in-person meetings should happen on, in the process because usually when people meet people, the discussion changes. It's not that we are not in silos anymore. We might be a little bit more open to the other perspective, like on, uh, while on internet and on social media, sometimes we really lack this capacity. So this is what I would under, understand. We should uh, experiment, uh, experiment with uh, participatory budgeting. We should learn from each other. Uh, doing is the best experience possible. So try it, test it, improve it. You, each city will find its own solutions. There are a lot of good experiences and know-how on this. But again, the bottom line is, I think that even participatory budgeting is about people-to-people -people relationships. And if we manage to build these relationships, then we'll get participation, we get trust, and at the end, we get ownership of the population. Thank you. And we will see, of course, what comes out of the further work that Demotech are doing. Marlene, it's a, it's a tough job, but I'm going to ask you to sum up your position at the end of everybody else. Uh, again, try and keep it around 30 seconds because I know we have run over time already. Yes, <clears throat> thank you. And, and just maybe two points, uh, just to, re to react on, on the EU structural funds as well. It's about shared management, but it's how to allow for experimentation in those funds. Like the risk should not be 
uh, that you experiment and that you fail maybe, or that the, in terms of accountability, how will it work? That's a big question also for municipalities to do that with the European funds, for instance. The other point that I would like to make is that this participatory budgeting is closely related to the dialogue that can be put, uh, that can be stored on um, the policy and the challenges that the municipality or the regions is facing. So this common understanding of the challenges is very important. It's starting with that. So it's, as I was saying, it's not a one-off exercise. It has to be repeated regularly so that people more and more are used to participate in those uh, processes. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to all our panelists and to you, the audience, for your comments and your questions. I hope we've given you some food for thought. Remember, you can join in the conversation online using the hashtag EA Debates. And do stay with your active from plenty more conversations on this and other subjects in the near future. Have a great day and a great afternoon.